Well, good morning again, and welcome to worship again. I'm really glad that all of you are here. I want to say welcome also now, especially to those of you who are joining us in our traditional sanctuary and online and via broadcast. I'm really glad that you guys are here. I'm glad that we all have this opportunity to learn and grow together as followers of Jesus Christ. You know, we started a new series last week, a short little three-week series. It started last week, and it ends next week. And we started this series last week by acknowledging and learning about the kind of strange disconnect in our lives between how important money is to all of us, what a huge role material resources and money plays in our lives, how we can barely go a day, probably can't go a day without using money somehow, thinking about it, maybe worrying about it, maybe talking about it, how huge a role money plays in our lives, and yet how awkward it can feel to talk about it in church, in a place where we want to come and honor God with our whole lives and learn how to follow Jesus with our whole lives. And we talked about how money is usually tied to something deeper in our lives, how money is rarely just about the money. It's usually tied to something like relationships, or it's tied to our emotions, or maybe our hopes or our dreams, or maybe also our fears. And because it's tied to these things, we learn about how the way that we use money and the relationship that we have with money, how it can be a real revealer of our priorities. It'll reveal what it's tied to. It reveals what's really important in our lives. And we learned specifically from the teaching of Jesus last week, we learned that the way that we use money and the relationship that we have with money, it'll reveal our attachment to Jesus' coming kingdom of God. It'll reveal how high a priority our relationship with God is in our lives. But not only is the way that we use money a revealer, that's one thing, but it's also a shaper. It also creates something in us. The decisions that we make create more of the same, or they kind of put us on a path. And so we learn that money has deep spiritual value. But I wanted to talk, start by talking about that today, because I think when we work with this assumption that money has spiritual value, that it's a spiritual thing, I just want to kind of acknowledge that I don't think most of us actually think that most of the time. I think in a lot of our lives, we're not making any connection, myself included. I think sometimes we just get moving and we do the things we do in life and we don't think about the spiritual significance of material resources. Like here, I, I don't always have stuff in my pockets when I get up here, but today I brought along a few things. This is my wallet. Nobody rush the platform. You won't really get anything good anyway, all right? So there's some cash in my wallet here. I've also got some debit cards. I don't know if you have debit cards or not. My family uses a lot of cash for our daily transactions. We don't use that, we don't do that electronically very much. We learned that from uh, Dave Ramsey and Financial Peace University, and so we use cash a lot. It's real simple, and it's also kind of like hip and retro, right? Kind of fun. So uh, I also brought along a checkbook. Now, I'm not so retro that I actually know how to use this anymore. I haven't written a check for a long time, but here's a checkbook. And then the thing that actually probably I use as much as anything else is my phone right over here. Do any of you have mobile banking apps? I have my banking apps right over there. Now, here's a question. Like, how spiritual is that, right? I mean, cash, checkbook, card of some kind, mobile banking apps. I mean, if you had to pick between the words spiritual and crass, wouldn't you almost go the other way? on that? So how is it that, that money can be a spiritual thing in our lives? Well, today is the right day to ask that question, because today is the day of Pentecost. It's a big holiday in the Christian church. It's probably like one of the best kept secrets in the Christian church. It should be a holiday on par with like Christmas and Easter, because it's the story of how God first poured out his own presence, poured out his spirit on the church and kind of created the body of the church after Jesus was ascended into heaven. 
It's Pentecost. Pentecost was a holiday, actually, even long before that. Pentecost was a Jewish holiday 2,000 plus years ago, and it, it started off as a harvest festival. It was a time when the ancient Jews, the ancient Israelites, would worship God and thank God for the first fruits of the harvest and, and celebrate in faith and look forward to the rest of the harvest coming in. But then on one Pentecost day, around the year 33 AD, the first followers of Jesus, who were themselves all Jewish, so they were gathered together on this holiday, and all kinds of people, Jewish people from all over the Mediterranean world who lived in different countries, came together in Jerusalem for this Pentecost holiday. They call it Pentecost, because Penta means five, and it's 50 days after Passover. They were all gathered there in Jerusalem, and the, and the followers of Jesus were gathered together in one place, and they were praying. They were praying because Jesus had told them before he ascended into heaven, Jesus had been crucified, he'd been killed, and then God raised him again from the dead, and he was alive, and then he was with the disciples for a period of weeks, and then he ascended, before their eyes, he ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of God, sat down at God's right hand, that's a position of authority, to rule as king over the world and over your life and over mine. But he told his disciples, just pray and wait. And I'm going to send you the gift of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes on you, you're going to receive power and then go out and tell everybody about me. So they were waiting. They were waiting in Jerusalem and they were praying. And as they were praying on this Pentecost holiday, something miraculous happened. God poured out his Holy Spirit on them and they were empowered. And what they were empowered to do was they began to speak in foreign languages that they did not know. Now, if that happened to me, that would probably scare me. If it happened to you, it would scare me even more. But God poured out his spirit on people, and they began to speak in languages they did not know, and they talked about Jesus. And there were other people around who they were talking about Jesus too. And the other people said, what's going on here? They must be drunk. I don't get that. Have you ever known anyone who drank too much and started speaking Spanish that they didn't know before? Like, I don't know why they thought that, but they thought that. Now, I should, I should explain something. We talk about God pouring out his spirit. He pours out his Holy Spirit. And I think maybe a lot of us aren't 100% sure what that means. Like, Holy Spirit, what is that? It sounds kind of spooky. It does crazy things. And I'd, I would love to spend a whole message or more on that sometime. But today, let me just be real brief. You can think of the Holy Spirit or God's Spirit as being God's own presence. In fact, one of my favorite New Testament scholars calls the Holy Spirit God's empowering presence. It's God pouring out himself. It's God giving us his own presence, coming to be with us and, and filling us with his power to do his work. And in this case, what God's empowering presence did was it created in these followers of Jesus the ability to testify about Jesus, to talk about what Jesus had taught and how he died and was raised again from the dead and the truth that he is the world's true Lord and King. And they told this story in languages they did not know. It was a miraculous gift. People heard this. Again, I don't know why they came to the conclusion they had too much to drink, but that's what they wondered. They were probably just making fun of them. But the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, learned two things in particular. They figured out two things about what does it mean that God has poured out his spirit on us. And the first thing that they realized this meant was that the future had begun. God's eternal future has like somehow moved forward into the present and now I'm in it. I'm living in the first days of God's future. Let me show you how we know that. It's in the book of Acts. It's in, the book of, it's in chapter two. And Peter, one of the leaders of, the, of these early Christian followers, these early followers of Jesus, stood up among them to answer the accusations and say, no, no, that's not what's happening. Here's what's happening. 
And to offer an explanation, he quotes from an ancient Israelite prophet whose name was Joel, and this is what he quotes from the prophet Joel. These were Joel's words. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, right? And so that's what's happening right now. God's pouring out his spirit on all people. So these must be the beginning of the last days. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. That's what they were doing. They were speaking about Jesus, prophesying. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And the prophecy kind of goes on from there. But that's how it starts. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit. And so the early Christians figured out that must be what's happening. God is renewing his creation like he always promised to do. And it's, it's very much like the story of how God created the world in the first place. If you go way back to the beginning of the biblical story, way back in the early chapters of the book of Genesis, it describes there a time where God himself walked in the garden in the cool of the day with his human creatures. And there was no separation. Sin hadn't divided human beings and God, and they were together. And then at the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, way in the last chapters of Revelation, it says that's the creation God is aiming for again. That God will make a new heaven and a new earth, not separate anymore, but together again. And it says there, and the dwelling place of God, God will dwell with his people again. That's what we're looking forward to. That, that divide between human beings and God being overcome and healed by God. And when that happens, all the sins that we've committed will be forgiven. And all the damage that sin has done against us will be healed. And relationships that have been broken can be put back together and Bodies that have been broken can be healed and death that has conquered humanity will be defeated and there will be life forevermore all by the power and grace of God and God himself will be with the people. It's, it's the gospel. It's the good news of what God is doing in Jesus. And when God poured out his spirit on those first Christians, they realized oh, this is how God made the world and it's what he wants to do in the world and it's begun. And it's begun and they began to live lives in that faith in the faith that God was creating that new world. The future had begun. And because the future had begun, they realized a second thing. The second thing they realized that the presence of God's spirit meant for them. And that was they realized that now they were no longer going to be led in life by a book of the law. But now they were going to be led by God himself. That God's own spirit would lead them and would lead their community together and would lead them in the ways of God. And they knew this because actually they had read another Old Testament prophet. Not just the prophet Joel, but there's a prophecy of the prophet Jeremiah that looks forward to the same time and just describes a different feature of that life. This is what God said through the prophet Jeremiah. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And so the Israelite, the, these first Christians who were all Israelites at that time figured out that this is that time and God has poured out his spirit on us, and now we're going to be led by God himself. And a lot of Christians have stumbled over this. It took them years to figure out, what does that mean if we're going to leave behind the law as our guide to life, and now follow the spirit? How do we do that? And a lot of people have stumbled over that, and sometimes we think, well, if we don't have the law anymore, then now we're just free to do whatever we want. That doesn't make any sense, though, right? I mean, God's not going to lead us to be unlawful. He's not going to lead our lives to be less than the law. He's going to lead our lives to be more than the law. But now that the future has begun, God himself, by his own presence, will lead us. This is what they figured out the spirit meant, what it meant to be spiritual followers of Jesus. And now we ask this question about how is it that money is spiritual? Well, when we read the teachings of Jesus, the way that Jesus talked to his followers and sometimes to would-be followers about the material resources in their lives, 
we see these very same insights or these very same principles at work. I think it'll be a little clearer if I take them in reverse order. So I want to show you how Jesus led people by his own presence and not by a law, and then talk about how Jesus' teaching to people about their material resources uh, was also oriented toward the future. Now, I don't know how many of you have had a chance to read the stories of Jesus' life, to read in particular maybe how it was that he talked to people about finances or money or material resources. But one of the things you might notice if you begin to read those stories is that Jesus led different people differently. It's not all the same. There's a lot of diversity in the way that Jesus taught about this. Let me just give you a few examples. There's one interaction he has with someone who later tradition has come to call the rich young ruler. He's described as a young guy, and he's described as having authority and a lot of resources. And he he comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What, What do I need to do to get the life that God has promised now and forever? And they have this interesting, long conversation. But at the end of it, Jesus tells him to do this. He says, you just have to do one more thing. You have to take everything you've got, sell it all, and give away all the proceeds to the poor. And Jesus, I think, told him that because he knew that that's what it would take for him to put God first in his life. Because for him, his possessions were first in his life. It was the most important thing to him. And you can kind of tell that because when Jesus told him, that's, that's what you need to do, is the story says he went away sad because he had a lot of stuff. And so he couldn't do it. He had to walk away from being a follower of Jesus. But there's another story where Jesus encounters a guy named Zacchaeus. It's kind of a famous, cute little story. Jesus meets this guy named Zacchaeus, and he's a chief tax collector. It means he's like, he's, he- he's the head cheater of all the guys who cheated the people below them. That, I'm not trying to say anything about tax collectors now, but that's how it was in the first century. So Zacchaeus also had a lot of money. He was a wealthy guy because he was kind of the head of this scheme, and most of his money was gotten by dishonest gain. But then he's looking for Jesus, and Jesus comes to him, and he goes to his house, and, and the Bible says salvation came to his house, and he turned his life around and began to follow Jesus. And one of the first actions he took as a follower of Jesus was first to give away half his stuff to the poor, which is interesting because it's half of his stuff, not all of his stuff like Jesus told the first guy, but it's still incredibly generous. I mean, if any of you, I don't know if, I don't know if any of us would be willing to just like right now sell off half our stuff, liquidate half our assets, and give it all away to the poor. That's an incredible act of generosity. And then he had to pay back what maybe kind of like bad debts, like people he had swindled or cheated from in the past. He said, if I've cheated anybody, and he had, (laughs) he had to give that back. He said, I'll give it back four times over, 400% interest. So that's still pretty generous. There's another story. It's in the Gospel of Luke. It's actually in Luke chapter eight. It's a very short little reference, more than a story, It talks there in Luke 8, the Bible tells us about some of the women who were followers of Jesus and gives us some of their names. There was a a Joanna and a Susanna who were among this group. And some of them had resources also. One of them, Joanna, was the manager of the resources in Herod's court. And Herod was the king over the whole area of Galilee. So she was a manager there over a ton of stuff. And it says that, that these women would sometimes support Jesus and his ministry out of their resources. So she had access to a lot, and there probably were times when Jesus wasn't able to be the carpenter or builder to practice his trade. The fishermen he called to follow him weren't fishing, and they were able to support this ministry. Now, it didn't sell off everything, didn't pay back at 400%. There wasn't a certain law about that, but that's what they did. Jesus led different people differently. Now, I don't want to overstate this case. I don't want to imply that it's just like utter chaos and anything goes I know that there were some common principles, some common insights guiding all of this, 
I'm convinced that Jesus just assumed, he just knew for a fact that all of his followers were tithing. That means they were obeying the practice from the Bible of giving 10% of their income to the temple. So I'm sure all of them were doing that. There's also in every case a a, a deep assumption of very, very open-handed generosity. I mean, in any of these stories, none of these stories are stories about stinginess. When God sets us free from the law, he doesn't set us free to be greedy, but to be generous. I think we can assume in most of these cases that people were still working at the jobs that they had before, because money's not all about what you give away, right? I mean, the way that we manage finances in our lives has to do with our earning and our spending and our saving and our sharing. And so I know that part of their lives, I mean, builders still built, fishermen still fished from time to time, officials officiated, tradesmen did their trades. They, They still worked at their jobs and earned income. And I know that the most important thing they all shared was the teaching that Jesus had taught his disciples in his famous Sermon on the Mount. He said, you know, when it comes to the stuff that you need for your life, you don't have to run after food. You don't have to run after provision. You don't have to run after clothing. People who don't know God, they chase those things. But what you should chase, what you should pursue, Jesus said, you seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be taken care of. That'll all be added to you as well. So I know that in every case, what was most important is that the most important priority was the coming kingdom of God, was Jesus' way of life. And yet, given those kind of examples, Jesus led different people differently. And I think that's still true in our lives right now, that we are led by God's empowering presence, by his spirit in our own unique circumstances and the stuff that we have and the needs around us and the mission that God has called us to, that God leads us to, that leads us himself and he might lead different ones of us. In fact, I'm sure he will lead different ones of us differently. That's part of the spirituality of money. We're dependent on God's spirit to lead us. But then also when Jesus taught about material resources and finances to his followers, he also oriented them toward the future. There's a parable that Jesus told. There's a, just a story, an example story, about a guy, a, a business owner, a landowner, who had generated a lot of wealth. He had a lot of resources. And he went away on a trip. And while he was gone, he entrusted his managers, he entrusted his servants with a ton of resources to manage. He gave one of his three guys, he gave one of them five bags of gold, which is a huge, unimaginable sum of money. He gave another one two bags of gold. He gave another one one. Now, the story, that's just realistic, I think, on the one hand, right? I mean, different people wind up managing different amounts of God's resources. Sometimes that's material resources, and sometimes it's something else entirely, but we're responsible for what we have. And the story doesn't tell us that it was good or bad to have more or less. The guy who had five bags, that wasn't an advantage or a disadvantage in this story. The guy who had one bag, that wasn't holier, and it wasn't less holy than the guy who had five bags. They just all got what they got, and Jesus was interested in what did they do with it. So the master went away on a trip, and he came back. But while he was gone, they each did different things. Actually, the guy who had five and the guy who had two, they did the same thing. They invested the money. Maybe they put it in another business. Maybe they put it into practice somehow. They worked the business they were in. But whatever they did, while he was gone, they doubled it. So he came back, and this guy now did, who had five, now he had ten. The guy who had two now had four. And the guy who had one, he didn't work the money. He didn't use what the master had given him. Said he buried it in the ground. I'm just going to hide it right here. And when the master comes back, I'll dig it up again and give it back to him. And the master punished that guy and rewarded these two guys. He rewarded them for using his resources to serve his purposes. It was all his in the first place. So the guy who had five, he gave ten back at the end. But the guy who had one did not use the master's resources to serve the master's purposes, and so he gave back the one. And so the master punished this guy and rewarded these two. But what's most interesting here, the point I'm really driving at right now, is what the reward was. Because I think sometimes we kind of get a little mixed up on that. 
We think that God's reward to us for a job well done is like early retirement or something. We get to kick up our feet. We get to go on a trip to the Caribbean. In the future, we get to float on a cloud and play a harp, something like that. I don't play harp very well, so it's never been very compelling to me. <laughs> but what Jesus said to this guy in the, in the parable, what Jesus had the master say is different than that. This is the master's reward. Matthew 25, it's verse 21. The master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Now, just pause there for a second, a few things. Five full bags of gold, vast amounts of wealth. Feels like a lot, but in the, in the perspective of eternity, it's a few things, not a big deal. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. The, the reward that he gave the servant was more responsibility. I'm gonna put you in charge of more. I'm gonna entrust you with more responsibility in the future. And maybe that's imagined to be like in the near-term future, in the five-year horizon or 10-year horizon, or maybe it's imagined to be the much longer-term horizon. In our lives, maybe God is preparing us for something that's just a little bit into our future. Maybe it's something that God is preparing us for in our eternal future. And that kind of blows my mind, actually. I have a hard time wrapping my head around. I don't know if the human imagination is capable of really understanding what it is that God has prepared for us to do in service to him in his eternal future. But this parable helps us to imagine that the way that we live right now, it's not that it doesn't have present value, it does. The way that we love our neighbor right now matters. It matters to God. The way that we take care of God's world, serve God's purposes right now in this world, it matters, it matters to God. But it's not the whole picture. What we're doing right now is also preparation. It's like a training exercise. It's something that God is doing in us to prepare us for his future. Whether that future is next week, next year, five years, 25 years, into God's eternity. It could be, I don't know. But God is preparing us for that. And so I think it's important for us to realize that when it comes to the management of the resources that God has entrusted to us, it's not only a matter of what does God want from you. Sometimes it can feel that way, but that's not the case. It's not just the question of what does God want from you. It's also a question of what does God want for you. What is God doing in you? What is God preparing you for? What kind of future is he preparing you for? What does he want to put you in charge of in the future? It makes the resources that we manage, the finances and money and material resources, a spiritual thing. It's a way that God is working in us by his spirit to grow us and prepare us for something. So let's just take a moment here and turn this teaching on ourselves and just briefly ask the question of how this applies to our lives. Now last week, we got to today's message by asking ourselves, where are we? Kind of, we finished with a map image. Can we put that map image up there? It's sort of like you are here, right? So it's a question of what does the way that I use my money reveal about me? Who am I right now? Where am I? Because any journey begins with knowing where you are. You can't take a step forward except from where you're standing. But this we want to layer on another question, not just where are you, not just what's revealed about you, but where's God going to lead you from here? So if we could switch that image over, there's a path in front of us, and God wants to also lead us forward. So what route is God leading me to take from this place? And I just invite you to think about that and pray about that this week. Hopefully over the course of the last week, you had the opportunity to begin asking the first questions, to begin praying about where am I? What is, what is my use of resources in my life? reveal about me? What does it say about what's important to me? What are, what are the choices I'm making? What are they reinforcing? What are they creating in me? And we also ask that question, how do I feel about that? 
Am I satisfied with that? Am I, going in, am, I, am I in a good place? Or do I want to grow from here? And maybe some of you got to think about that question and pray about that question this week. Maybe some of you weren't here last week or you just didn't get to think about it as much as you wanted to. So keep praying about that. And let me layer on this next question right now. Where do you think God wants you to go from here? What do you think the empowering presence of God that is given to us as a gift, that we don't have to be separate from God, we don't have to be stuck where we are, we don't have to be in bondage to whatever sin, maybe it's greed, whatever has us stuck in life, but God's spirit will set us free and take us new places. What do you think the empowering presence, the spirit of God wants to do in your life next? Where do you wanna go from here? What is God preparing you for next? Based on the resources that you manage, based on the circumstances of your life, based on the needs around you, based on the mission of the, of the community here that you're a part of or other things that God has you using your life for, what do you think God wants to lead you next? That's what I want to invite you to pray about in this coming week and to reflect on. When we get back together next week, what we're going to do is talk about the final thing. You got to know where you are. You got to know where you're going, but no journey begins without a first step. So we'll talk about the next steps that God's empowering presence, that God's spirit is leading each of us to take. And next week also, I want to shift the conversation a little bit, not just from how money moves around in our individual households, what it is that God's doing in us is, is individual, indivi as individuals or as families or as households, but also how does money move around in the larger household that is this church family? And I promised you last week that you could expect clarity in this series. And one of those pieces of clarity was what happens with the gifts that our whole church family manages after we put our money in the offering basket or give online or mail in a gift or however it is that you give, what happens next? And what does that money do and get spent on and what impact does it make? I want to share a little bit of that with you next week also. So let's close this time right now in prayer. Good and gracious God, we thank you so much for your generosity with us, your generosity with your own presence, your spirit, that you would come to be with us and not allow us to be separate from you, but draw us to yourself. God, we give you thanks for your incredible grace and we thank you for your spirits leading in our lives that we're not left to our own devices. And God, we pray today that you would just open the ears of our hearts, speak to us, and strengthen us. Strengthen us to follow you. Open our imaginations to see what it is you could have in front of us. Lead us and strengthen us to follow you. We live and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.